Welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us on this Super Bowl Sunday. We're in a series called Therefore Jesus, and we're kind of working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. And this morning, we come to a section kind of in the middle toward the end of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, grab a Bible, grab your phone, go to YouVersion, tee it up at Romans 8 verse 18. If you use a tablet, whatever you use, turn there. And this morning, I'm titling the passage we're going to look at, Groaning to Glory. So let me ask you, how many of you know what groaning is? All right, most of you. Well, that's practice. Everybody groan, right? Ah, but you do know what groaning is, right? How many of you know what glory is? Yeah, it's kind of a churchy word, right? Well, the word glory is used often in the Bible, and it's kind of a word of super intensification. So, for example, the word glory can refer to light, but light brighter and whiter than the sun, right? It's light intensified. Sometimes the word glory is used in the Bible to speak to not just wealth, but super incredible wealth. Someone has glorious wealth. So the word glory always means something intensified. Therefore, when the Bible speaks of God and his glory, take all of the positive attributes you can think of in life or think about human beings, multiply that by infinity, and that's God. This intensification of everything great and everything wonderful. So in this passage that I'm going to read, Paul talks, compares and contrasts present groaning and future glory, future infinite extrapolation of pleasure and positive. So here we go. Follow along as I read. Begin reading Romans 8, 18, and I'll read through 26 or somewhere about there. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Comparison, contrast, present groaning, future glory. So let's first of all talk about the context, the context in which Paul begins. The context is pain and suffering and groaning. I went through those verses that I just read and I cherry picked a few words and phrases. So let me just ask you as I read my cherry pick selection from Romans 8 beginning of verse 18, you think if you can relate to any of this. Present sufferings, subjected to frustration, bondage to decay, groaning as in pain, our weakness. Can you relate? That's the context. That's the present. That's why we're groaning, Paul says. Don't you love that the Bible is 
honest and accurate. The Bible's not some Pollyanna, saccharine presentation of life. The Bible says no. Paul says, hey, you want to know what life is made of today? Suffering, frustration, decay, pain, and weakness. I don't know about you. That's where I live. And here's the sad statement of life. If you are not presently this morning feeling keenly suffering, frustration, decay, pain, and weakness, if you're not feeling that keenly right now, you either just were feeling that or you will be soon feeling that. That's how life works. Life here and now in the present is about suffering, frustration, decay, pain, and weakness. We even have words for that, that, the, that uh, physics and scientists have come up with, right? The second law of thermodynamics, the principle of entropy. You know what that principle is? Everything is moving to disorder. Everything is moving to decay. Everything is falling apart. Don't you know that to be true? After all, when you comb your hair or arrange it, uh, does it stay that way forever? No, you have to fix it regularly, right? Um, how about you're at the front end of your car? Does it stay in alignment forever and ever and ever? No, no. We are now in the middle of pothole season. And there are some major potholes between my house and the office here, let me tell you. In fact, I've learned how to avoid them. Oh, yeah, and by the way, what is there about the female chromosome that makes them hit every pot? We better not go there. Makes them hit every pothole. <laughs> Sorry. But let me ask, do, do potholes jar your front end into alignment or knock it out of alignment? That's entropy. That's the, law of thermo, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything's falling apart. Your car gets disgusting as it, as it rides through the snow and the salt, and it has to be cleaned regularly. You put gas in the car, before you know it, you have to fill it again. If you don't believe that those laws are true, just look at your body. Is your body moving to health and wellness and wisdom? Heck no, our bodies are falling apart. The one word up on that screen, decay. That's where we're all headed. And if you aren't there yet, you soon will be. Our bodies are falling apart. They're becoming weak. They're experiencing suffering. We're often frustrated. We're in the midst of decay and pain. That's where we live. That's why we groan. That's what Paul said. That's the present reality. Isn't that where you live? Paul's honest and says, this is our present reality. Sufferings, frustration, bondage to decay, pain and weakness. But that's not where the story stays. But here's what I think Paul's doing in these verses. Paul is actually reminding us of the big story. Paul's talking about it kind of in microcosm, but in the back of his mind, he's thinking about the big story. Now, we talk about the big story in six acts. I'm not sure if Paul thought of it in six acts, but there's kind of our story there. And so here's the big story. And I want you to think about that groaning to glory and see how it fits the story. In the beginning, the Bible says God creates everything that exists and God intended there to be peace and harmony and partnership. That's why he created everything. That's what he wanted, peace, harmony, partnership. But by the time you get to act two, God is rejected. Human beings rebel against him. They decide they know how life should go, not how God wants it to go. They set out on their own. They take the steering wheel of their lives and they say, we know how to drive this vehicle better than you do. And all of the mess that we experience, all of that decay and suffering and weakness and pain 
come about because we thought we could do a better job running our lives in the universe than God could. I'm reminded of that often these days because uh, I have a grandson. He's 19 months old. And his favorite thing in the world at this point is driving. As soon as he sees something, he wants to go drive. And what he means by driving is he goes out and I put him on the driver's seat of my car and he takes the steering wheel and he's driving. And he loves buttons and knobs and levers and gadgets, which means if I'm not carefully watching him, when I get in the car later, the blinkers are on, the flashers are on, the overhead lights are on, the high beams are on. I mean, the car, I, it takes me a week to figure out what he was working on. But if you, but if you could interview Jeffrey and say, do you know how to drive a car? He would say, of course I know how to drive a car. Watch me. But if, we, but if I did start the car and put it in the drive, there would be a disaster and a tragedy. Jeffrey can no more drive my car or his parents' cars than you and I can run our lives and steer the universe. We swear we can, though. But what happened in Act 2, we made a mess of things. We drove off the, off the road. We're driving through the cornfields. We're hitting buildings. We're, we're killing pedestrians. We're making a mess of things, even though we think we can drive. God then makes promises in Act 3, and he says, but I promise I'm going to work this all out. There will one day be peace, harmony, and partnership, just like I promised. It is coming. But here's the frustration. God doesn't bring it immediately. He gives the promise right at the beginning of Act 3, but there's a time lag before we get the promise fulfilled in completion. And so we live with the consequences of Act 2, even though we live in light of the promises of Act 3. Isn't that for us frustrating? We're living with the consequences, so we live with groaning, and we live with pain, and we live with suffering, and we live with frustration, and we live with a sense of weakness and decay, even though God's promised he's going to work it all out and the original intention will come to fruition, we still live in the mess. And then in Act 4, God appears. Jesus shows up. Now, with the big story in mind in Romans 8 echoing in your brain, let me remind you. Every miracle Jesus does, you, you think over the ones you know about, every miracle Jesus does, his miracles are not demonstrations of raw power. His miracles are recollections of the intention and promises of the conclusion. Every miracle. God wants there to be peace and harmony and partnership. And what are the miracles? Bringing peace and harmony and partnership. Where there is alienation and where there's frustration and suffering and pain and decay. Jesus steps into that and his miracles reverse the consequences of sin that Paul writes of in the context in Romans 8. That's what the miracles are. And then God sends us that have the promise. God says, I want you guys to go out and I want you to share the good news, share the gospel of the coming conclusion, which is a reflection of God's original intention. And as we begin to experience that in just a little bit today, go and extend that. Let other people experience it through you as you speak to them about the promises and the Savior who's come to bring that all about. And one day, this is what we just read in Romans 8 too. One day, God restores it all. And there will be peace and harmony and partnership forever and ever. What Paul's doing in Romans 8, beginning of verse 18, is saying, 
You know the big story. I hope you have the big story in the back of your brains. But here are the couple of themes that come to the forefront of our minds. We live in a world where there's groaning and there's pain and suffering. There's frustration. There's decay. There's weakness. But we live in light of God's promises being fulfilled when he restores it all at the end. That's where, what Paul's, Paul's thinking of the big story when he writes the letter to the Romans. Well, what about hope then? How does that work? How does the hope picture come into this? Well, as Paul tells us here, if you're going to have hope, you have to first of all admit the context. And we've been talking about the context in terms of entropy, right? And so the verse that we had up there, here it is. We've got suffering and we've got frustration and there's decay and there's pain and there's, that's the context. That is the entropy experience that we all live in. But did you notice that Paul says, renewal is on the way. Here's how Paul says it in these verses. I consider that our present suffering, he just told us about present sufferings in 18. Then he says here, I consider our present sufferings, they're not even worthy to be compared with the glory, that intensification of pleasure and joy that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own will, by its own choice, but by the will of the, of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Hope is coming. We hope now for that coming change and that coming difference. Well, if the situation in the present is full of groaning and renewals coming, what does that mean? And how does that work? We often have a very reductionistic or a very narrow view of what God accomplished. And here's what I mean. When we think about the good news that Jesus brings most of the time, we think almost entirely or primarily of the restoration of our relationship with God. And that is primary, and that's important, and that's at the center. But that's not all that he brings. You see, when, when we experience the results of that alienation, we're alienated from God, from ourselves, from other people in the world. We're alienated at least four directions. The good news of the gospel is God is restoring all four of those. So once we're reconnected to God, we get a clearer sense of being connected with ourselves. We can then be better connected to other people. And one day we will be reconnected to the world and nature and so forth. Work will be as God intended that to be as well. So we often are short-sighted in how that works. Well, what's the reason for that? How, how can our groaning be turned into glory? How can God do it? God just said, well, I see they're in pain. I know. I'll fix it. Now, remember, it's our rebellion that brought it about. Can God just kind of laugh or overlook the rebellion? No. What's the reason that our groaning can be turned to glory? Interesting. Paul tells us in the same chapter. So earlier on in the chapter, here's what Paul writes. For what the law was powerless to do. Now you see that? What the law couldn't do. What couldn't the law do? The, couldn't, the law couldn't bring glory out of groaning. The law couldn't do away with suffering. 
The law can't eradicate pain. The law can't solve the frustration problem. The law can't reverse decay. The law can't make those that are weak strong. But we continually go back to the law, don't we? When we're experiencing pain and frustration, decay and weakness, what do we do? We're going to try harder. We're going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to be more disciplined. We're going to say our prayers more faithfully. I'm not saying all those things are bad. I'm just saying they can't solve the problem. We often resort to the very thing that Paul and the Bible continually remind us is powerless to bring about the change we want. The law can't do it. You can't go back to self-discipline, can't go back to self-help, can't go back to fixing yourself. Those are powerless to change anything in your life. Well, let's keep reading then. What the law was powerless to do, God did. Isn't that good? What the law couldn't do, God did. What the law was powerless to do, God did. Now, how did he do it? He, he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is called Christmas. So Paul says, what the law couldn't do, God did. How? Christmas. What do we celebrate at Christmas? The incarnation. God becoming a human being. We celebrate act four. God appears. God shows up. But that's not just the end of the story. It isn't that God shows up and shows us how to live. That's going back to the law again. The law is powerless. If Jesus would have come and said, hey, guys, you really need to buck up, you know? I mean, if Jesus only came to give us lots of really good teaching, nothing would have really changed because we still have this enormous debt that needs to be paid. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to be a sin offering. Jesus comes to pay what we can't pay. One of the illustrations that um, we talk about or we will talk about at Exploring Jesus is that, let's call it the book illustration. So uh, pretend my right hand uh, is all of humanity. So here are people over here. Well, people rebel against God, act two, all that junk. Well, the law comes and now human beings are separated, alienated from God. There's a giant barrier between human beings and God. They can't get there. But what, the, what human beings couldn't do, you can't do more law and get reconnected. You're only going to burden the problem and make, make the chasm bigger. But God sent his son. Notice in Jesus, there's no obstacle. There's no barrier. There's nothing between God and Jesus. But when Jesus became a, a sin offering, God took all that we owed and that barrier between us and him and placed it on Jesus so that now we are free to have access with God in a relationship with him because Jesus took all of that stuff when he became our sin offering. That, that's the picture. So what's the reason that our groaning has, can be turned to glory? Not because we try harder, not because we get more law, not because we're more obedient, not because we do more self-help, because Jesus took all of the penalty. He became the sin offering so that we now have access to God. And rather than alienation, there is now reconciliation and redemption and restoration. Those aren't just churchy words. They're wonderful words that speak about the glory, the little taste we get now, and the ultimate banquet that's coming. So that's why hope can happen. Well, that then raises a, an important question. I hope you guys ask regularly. And that question goes like this. Well, so what? So what? 
It's 11.15. Let's get out early. Now, we can't do that. that. That is not the so what answer. So what? So what that we experience groaning, and you all agreed you experience groaning. I heard you. Um, and so what that there's glory awaiting for those that are in Jesus because Jesus became a human being and he became a sin offering for us. So what's the difference? Well, here's how that should make a difference. I'm going to tell you to look in three different directions, not, not with your eyes necessarily. Now, here's the first one. First, you need to uh, look up. Look up. You ever notice that when you're experiencing pain, suffering, decay, frustration, weakness, you ever realize how self-centered and self-focused you get? Or is it just me? It's kind of all about me, right? Oh, I'm hurting so bad. Oh, these people. Do. So my focus begins on my pain and how I'm feeling weak and the decay I'm experiencing. So what happens? All of this stuff. And I immediately focus on me. Woe is me. Life is so terrible. Well, the first thing we need to do is to look up. Look above and beyond your little slice and photograph of the story to the big story. I would tell you to look up in two directions. You can have your choice. Look up to Romans 8. And go back to Romans 18 and say, hey, I'm in the midst of groaning. Glory's on the way, right? Look up, look up to Romans 8 and what Paul says. Or look up to the big story. Yeah, I'm experiencing this groaning and this pain and frustration and weakness and decay. That's all coming as consequence because of human rebellion. Maybe not my rebellion individually, but it's coming because of human rebellion. It's coming because we live after Act 2. Look up beyond your little story. So you can go to Romans 8 when you're experiencing that, or you can go to the big story. But don't just allow yourself to sit and mope and get so self-free. You get all turned in on yourself, and before you know it, you're in kind of a, you know, just a spiral downward of pain and frustration and woe is me, and it goes down. Don't look up. That's what Paul's doing. He acknowledges their suffering. He acknowledges their frustration. There's pain. There's decay. There's weakness. But don't focus on that. Look up. The big story. Look up to the story of Romans 8. That'll help. Secondly, look ahead. Look ahead. Isn't that what, what Paul says? Look ahead. Look ahead. The groaning becomes glory. He even gives us an illustration. Did you notice the illustration he gives? He mentioned it. I, I didn't make it up. He mentioned it. I, I'll start it. I know some of you are not realizing. I'll, I'll start it and you finish it. Right now, we are groaning as in the pains of four women, said childbirth. <laughs> Notice not a man in the room said anything about childbirth, right? Um, yeah, so that's the illustration he uses. And what an appropriate illustration. Here's what Paul says. Right now, we're groaning the way women groan when they're giving birth. In case I haven't told you before, Birth hurts. I mean, I was there. I saw it. I mean, it's serious. But how quickly the pain is swallowed up in joy. Isn't that weird? Like, it happens quickly. And so as soon as the nurses, the doctor, the midwife, whatever, as soon as they bring the little baby and hand it off to the mom... Smiles, tears of joy, all of the pain is quickly 
forgotten. It's kind of in the past. It's a distant memory almost. Funny how that works. Now, here, here's an interesting point that the Bible makes regularly. That birth, that new life, did not come into being in spite of that pain. That new life exists because of and through the pain. I kind of think in that we have an echo of the big story, right? So if you go to the beginning, what's God's original intent? Peace, harmony, partnership. But once that rebellion happens, once that revolt, once that coup takes place, God says, now my original intention will come to be. There will be eternal life. But now the only way to get that, the only way to get them back is through pain. And in some small way, God gives married couples and women and families a little echo of the big story of good news because it's through the pain that the new life and joy and glory comes. It's kind of interesting if you, uh, my wife teaches in a, she's over in the nursery most weeks. And it's kind of interesting to hear uh, moms as they're dropping off the little ones for the nursery. They, they talk about how their baby now is sleeping through the night or not. And they talk about how the baby's throwing up and or not and what the baby's eating. And, and then they go to the toddlers and they talk about how they're crawling and their first words are being said. They kind of make their way down. I have never heard a conversation in the nursery or the creepers or crawlers, whatever it's called. I haven't heard a conversation, that whole section there, of a group of women just sitting in the corner complaining, frustrated, angrily discussing the pains of childbirth. They talk about the pains of their husbands, but they don't talk about the pains of childbirth. Huh. So, so let me ask you all. We're among friends. How many of you here have experienced the pain of childbirth? Raise your hand. Yeah and experience, to some degree, the glory of life that comes after. All right, go, put your hands down. Now I'm going to ask you another question. How many of you have experienced the pain of birthing a kidney stone? Raise your hand. Good. I never have, thank God. I've talked to a bunch of people that have. Discussion's different than it is in the nursery hallway. Like, I never hear a kidney stone, kidney stone birther say like this, you should see my kidney stone. <laughs> it's home on the dresser. That sucker's growing up. You should see it. Now, usually when kidney stone birthers are talking, they talk about the pain and the heartache and how difficult it was. This was a t in fact, right after the first service, two men in the men's room tell me how painful the childbirth of a kidney stone was. But there's no glory at the end. There's no life. So here's the sad but honest reality. If you are in Jesus Christ, just as Romans 8 describes, then any pain, frustration, decay, weakness, and suffering that you experience will soon be swallowed up in the glory and joy of new life and life eternal. Look ahead. Oh yeah, and the rest of that story is. And if you are not in Jesus Christ, we're glad you're here. But here's what Paul would say to you today. You too experience pain and frustration, decay, weakness, suffering. 
And if you remain outside of Christ, you're just birthing a kidney stone. There's no glory and joy at the end. But for those of us in Jesus, we need to look ahead, right? Look up from your little story. Look up and see, hey, this is a bigger story. And look ahead to the glory that the groaning will be swallowed up into. And one more, one more thing. Look in, look in, look inside. Now, we started out by saying, boy, immediately we're experiencing suffering, but we look within. But I'm telling you to look in in a different way. Here's what I'm doing. If you're anything like me, as soon as you experience pain, suffering, frustration to any degree, as soon as you sense your weakness, as soon as you experience decay, you immediately look for someone or something to blame. Do you do that? Oh, just me, right? Yeah. It's her fault. It's their fault. Look what they're doing to me. I'm if they were different, I wouldn't be in this agony. I look for someone to blame or something to blame. I kind of think Paul's saying, yeah, time out, time out on that, right? If you look up and see there's a bigger story and you look ahead to the glory, that intensification of pleasure and purpose at the end, you'll be able to look in and ask this question. Hey, God, any changes or things you want me to make on the inside so I can live better in sync with you so I can honor you more and live as you call me to live? Not to earn anything. Jesus already did all that. But in gratitude and thanksgiving for what he's already done. I was thinking uh, this past week, and I talked uh, in my small group on Friday about it. Think of the worst job you can ever imagine. Somebody think, that's my job. Okay, well, think of your job then, right? Whatever it is. But multiply that by an ex extrapolated negative number. So here's the job. You're working on an assembly line and it's miserably hot and it's tedious and the people that work with you are miserable and it's sheer agony. Your boss is yelling in your ear. The numbers aren't working. Life is miserable and you have to work a 12-hour shift. Got it? Think, that is my job. Oh, well, think of your job. It's a terrible, wretched job. Nobody wants this job. Suppose somebody that you trust says, okay, okay, look, but if you just hang in there, at the end of 12 hours, I'll give you $50. I don't know about you. I'd say, well, big whoop, $50. You can imagine after the first five minutes, man, $50 at the end of 12 hours. That's all you get. Get back to work. Oh. What would your attitude be as you're working on that line? Oh, you'd be cursing people. You'd be saying words you're not allowed to say in church. You'd be miserable to the people next to you. You'd be, angry. You'd be banging things. You'd be allowing stuff to go by. You don't care about what's happening, right? They're not paying you what you're worth. I don't care about this miserable job. I don't care about them. This is terrible. You would be crotchety and nasty and miserable all 12 hours of it. Well, suppose the person working next to you, same exact job, same exact context, same heat, same screaming, yelling boss, same numbers have to be met, but he was promised at the end of the 12-hour shift that he's going to get a million dollars. What would his attitude be? He'd probably be whistling while he's working. It's a great job, isn't it? Yeah. You're not doing that right. Can I help you, sir? Let me help you there a little bit. Um, is it coffee break already? I'm, I'm about half done. I can't believe this is the best job ever. What changed? Not the job. Not the temperature, not the tedious nature of it, not the screaming, yelling boss. What changed? The payoff at the end of the day. 
So what does Paul say? When you go through life, friends, you'll experience a lot of suffering, frustration, pain, decay, and weakness. But if you're in Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel is, and you can take this one to the bank because it comes from God himself, you get something worth infinitely more than a million bucks. You get the glory that God promises to Jesus, and you get to share it with him forever. It's not going to change the pain or the tedium. It should change our outlook. It should change our attitude. It should change how we treat people. It should change our perspective. So in the midst of all that pain and suffering and misery, continue what Jesus started. Glory's on the way. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this honest message that we often ignore. We recognize the suffering part and we admit it. We experience the weakness on a regular basis. We know frustration intimately and decay is always before us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to look up, see the bigger story that we're part of. Help us to look ahead to the glory that we don't deserve, but Jesus came to give to us. Help us to look in and say, between now and then, I got some work to do. Change on the inside so I can honor God and serve people better on the outside. Pray in the name of Jesus who makes that possible.